Welcome back for another episode of the Happy at Work podcast with Laura, Tessa, and Michael. Each week, we have thoughtful conversations with leaders, founders, and authors about happiness at work. Tune in each Thursday for a new conversation. Enjoy the show. everyone to the Happy at Work podcast, and I am so excited that we have with us here today Dr. Delvina Miramati Baldino, who is an expert in resilience and positive psychology. So welcome, Delvina, to the Happy at Work podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me here. I'm really looking forward to it. Absolutely. So I want to dive right in and and just learn a little bit more about you and your career journey and your work uh, in resilience and positive psychology. Beautiful. I'm so happy to be here, as I said, and especially with, you know, experts like yourself. Um, I look forward to learning from you as well as, you know, sharing my journey Um, in this kind of career path that I've been on has been a bit unconventional. Um, And it seemed even when I kind of set goals that were more conventional, um, life just brought me in a different direction. So uh, just kind of going way back, I grew up uh, in Maine, uh, had kind of a, a separation childhood and found myself being kind of highly sensitive. And that really meant I was very in tune with other people's Um, emotions and their sensitivity. And that kind of made psychology a very natural interest for me very early. And I really just kind of pursued that path um, in a very narrow way. Clinical psychology was what I was going to do. And I really devoted everything, my education to that. So I found myself, you know, getting a BA in psychology and then knowing that I think it's like two to four people are accepted every year, you know, at each university in clinical psychology that I had to really build this resume. Uh, So research assistant and, you know, really found myself trying to pursue this very heavily. Um, And what ended up happening in the way of which I tend to do things is I just found myself in Boston emailing every psychiatrist, psychologist I could find online and just saying, hey, here I am. This is, you know, what I want to do. Um, Can I be your research assistant? Uh, And actually what ended up happening was that worked. There was just this random kind of grant position. And what led from that was a position at the Swenser Depression Prevention Initiative. And so that was kind of the first time I thought, hmm, there's more to this psychology thing than just one-on-one that we were kind of going out in communities and schools and really teaching uh, awareness of what are the signs and symptoms, but even more than that, some of the skills that could be learned both from the parents and the students. And really what we were doing was, you know, promoting resilience. Uh, And so it kind of led me down this new path of thinking about, you know, well, you know, if 
we can be teaching this just me to them. What if schools were teaching this, you know, as kids were growing up, how would that change things for them? And so I became more interested in more of health promotion, um, found myself at Harvard's Graduate School of Education doing human development and psychology. And then from there, going into a PhD program that was actually an educational leadership with a focus on looking at college student resilience and how um, really did my doctoral work looking at specifically um, students of color, Black and Hispanic females who are most at risk for dropping out and really um, trying to uncover, you know, what are the resilient skills that lead to a successful, you know, process and kind of a healthy college experience. And um, so that's kind of, then I got into my next position was really working almost in the EAP um, world, but it was helping develop kind of SAP programs. So looking at how can we create these technology platforms, uh, opportunities for students to engage in well-being and resilience building skills. Um, so I you know, partnered with NASPA and in student affairs and was really helping to kind of think about what kind of tools and programs can we be providing to students to help them really foster resilience. And then you know, that led into also thinking about from an employee perspective, you know, how can we think about resilience um, programming, you know, outside of just focusing on mental health, uh, really thinking about it from this health promotion standpoint and what, you know, what can we be doing in that field? So now here I am um, and uh, just kind of had this unique way of getting into health promotion and mental health from, you know, this kind of health perspective, but also bringing it education and all of that. Alvina, it's a really interesting career path you have, and, and I love positive psychology as well, and I'm, I'm curious, what are you most excited about in your work with positive psychology? What really lights you up? Hmm. As you can see, there's a lot. I can't really talk about this without getting excited, um, but I think Specifically, I would say where we are now, um, I think there's something shifting in that there is more of um, a mainstream awareness of this. You know, I think it was in 2016, I started a company called Realize Your Resilience. And honestly, at that point, um, I was actually, I was trying to offer services over Zoom and people was like, you know, we're like, what is Zoom? And, um, you know, I was talking about resilience. And at that time, it's a very common term now. But at that time, people were less familiar and um, less accepting really of, okay, if it's not mental health, meaning, you know, the, you know, mental illness, then what are you talking about? What kind of service are you going to offer me that's going to improve my life, right? I don't have anxiety. I don't have depression. Um, and so that became kind of what I think is what I'm really excited about, that I think people are starting to really embrace this idea that just because I don't have mental illness doesn't mean I'm necessarily mentally healthy, and that there actually is a lot in the science that is showing us that we can be doing things. And when we look at, you know, companies like uh, Better Up, or, you know, there's some, you know, even Calm has the 
now calm business, right? They're starting to think about, oh, these, these ideas of coaching and, um, you know, mindfulness and meditation don't exist outside of the, the workplace because we have this, you know, all of these employees in one place or all of these students in one place and that these kind of terms of mental fitness, I think um, a lot of people talk about it, right? Is uh, I just actually did a, a workshop for a construction company. And I was thinking, you know, how can, how can I relate what I know and live, right? Um, to them in a way that actually relates to them. And what I found was, you know, talking about it as kind of this mental fitness that just because you don't have cancer, right, doesn't mean you're physically as healthy as you can be. You know, what do you do to be healthier? You eat the right foods, you move your body and, you know, do things, make healthy choices. It works the same, right? And helping them see that their mind is the same in that we need to, just because we don't have a, you know, a mental illness doesn't necessarily mean we're as healthy as we can be. And in order to really foster that, we need to intentionally be doing things every day. And so we talked about very simple things that they could be doing every day, but that seemed to resonate in really making that um, comparison to just the choices and how we live our life and how that impacts our mental fitness and, and um, well-being as well as our physical I love that, Delvina. I love that analogy to, I mean, I'm not love talking about cancer, but the analogy of like, we don't, you don't have that, but you still really pay attention to your physical health. Why wouldn't we do the same thing, right? With, with mental health. I love that so much. That's helpful. I, I think I might use that. I love listening to your career journey. It's fascinating. So um, my question for you is, when you've worked on these kinds of interventions or, you know, that's our term for it, but this work, right, of trying to help people, um, you know, from a positive psychology perspective, which interventions would you say that you've seen really work and maybe maybe share an example of that? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I think originally because I come from a place of psychology, so originally I came into positive psychology with kind of that personal internal transformation um, that in order to improve our lives, we really have to start with us and ourselves. And so a lot of the work I was doing was really focused on the individual, right? Giving them those skills and transforming their mindset. But what I found obviously is that that only gets you so far if then the home they're going to isn't, you know, a positive kind of culture fostering that. The business they're going to isn't fostering that same idea and culture, the school setting, right? So what I've found is most effective is really kind of that bottom up as well as top down of really thinking about how is leadership showing up? What is the kind of culture around, you know, things like psychological safety and um, emotional intelligence. Uh, and that when, you know, the culture and the environment can really support the individual, that then there's opportunity for their well-being to then enhance the productivity and performance and success of the organization. So I think just really looking at, you know, what is it? Brene Brown has a um, a quote about, you know, we're not just thinking rational beings that occasionally have emotions that we need to just kind of shove away, that we're actually feeling emotional beings that occasionally think. 
And when I think about, you know, what if the workplace can embrace that, if the schools can embrace that, that really we're all just emotional humans and it's not something that belongs secretly, you know, in our homes or, you know, tucked down underneath all of our thinking and problem solving and work related, you know, tasks um, that then we just it creates a culture that then I think is resilient, right? Because if you think about what life does, you have employees who lose a child, who have a parent who's diagnosed with some terminal illness that, I mean, life is just constantly doing that to us. And if the workplace or the school is not um, really embracing this space and culture where that's part of, you know, supporting them through that and understanding that, you know, that is their process, um, I think it can become very detrimental, as we've seen with the high stress and high burnout and um, really that um, the, the negative effect that can have. Completely. And, you know, treating people like human beings. What an idea, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> so the I think that what's interesting um, about this is just this idea of emotions at work and how much we've in the past, at least, said you should keep your emotions at the door, right? Don't don't bring your emotions into this important decision or this important conversation that's separate from work. And that's where I just think we're at this really interesting spot where employees are demanding that you consider me as a human being all, with all that that comes with that, right? But we haven't really figured out at work ways to really embrace that and start to have a new language around emotion um, and how we use that at work. So I'm so with you. There's so, there's some significant work that needs to be done. I agree. That's a nice way to say it. Well, Delvina, I wanted to follow up actually on, on that last piece, because I know that you've applied this work um, in the education sector. And then, as you mentioned, in other industry sectors like construction and other types of industries, so how, and, and you spoke a little bit about your experience in 2016 versus now we're in, um, are we in a post-pandemic? I'm not sure if we're post-pandemic yet. I think we're moving in that direction, but certainly our lives have changed quite dramatically. Um, and we're seeing the terms around well-being now being brought up in the workplace. And so um, in your work in doing uh, EA, working with EAP programs and things like that, what are some of the things that you see companies doing to promote well-being at work? So um, I always think about, um, do you guys know the, uh, the it comes from, actually, you might know it, um, Tess, with your masters um, in MPH, but it's a public health parable, the upstream, midstream, downstream, the story actually, of- Actually, I don't know it. So go ahead and tell us so, it, yeah. So there's this story of a guy who's kind of on the riverbank and he sees somebody uh, flailing in the, in the river, kind of struggling to swim and struggling to survive basically. And so he jumps in and saves him and he comes out, he's, you know, resuscitating him and putting in a lot of energy and effort and he's exhausted. And then he looks up and there's another woman coming down the river, struggling to swim. And so he again, jumps in and then he looks upstream a little bit and he sees 10 people and then 20 people. And he's yelling for other people to help him save more people. And they're all just jumping in and 
you know, some of them are going back in the river after they're rescued and they just feel totally overwhelmed. And this man kind of stands up and just starts walking upstream. And the, you know, somebody yells to him, where are you going? We need you here. We need as many people possible saving these people. And he says, um, I'm going upstream to see why people are falling in the river to begin with. Right. So um, and I and I think, you know, you go upstream and it's like, well, the bridge is broken and there's no signs saying that the bridge is broken. So people are just walking and falling in. And so it's really this uh, idea, right, that that follows really closely with, I think, what we're talking about today of in in the organizations. Right. We can be really reactive and, and have programs that support um, reactively, which I think companies have done over time in the EAP world. Um, and then even the midstream of being able to, OK, once you're kind of having a hard time, um, how can we identify you? Right. So there's assessments that are deployed and we can kind of risk uh, flag kind of high risk um, people. But I think the upstream is newer. And um, again, I'm optimistic that I think we're in a place where we're really shifting that I think we need a balanced approach, right? We need all of the levels of downstream, midstream, and upstream. But I find that, you know, again, technology has provided an opportunity for us to start doing things like, you know, more coaching, right? These more upstream, how can we not just put up signs and build a new bridge, but can we create new pathways that they can just walk along the river in a different direction or, you know, help them figure out why they're crossing the bridge to begin with and, and maybe set different goals. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the EAP world is shifting and changing to be more inclusive of these ideas that we're talking about of like a really more balanced and more um, preventative approach to well-being. I love the analogy that you bring in, Delvina, and I'm curious if we could look at it through the lens of higher education. Uh, not only did my teaching executive ed, but I spend most of my te time teaching on the undergraduate level, and those students are really stressed, a lot of pressure from school, family. Most of my students are international, so they're not with family support. They don't have their pets, their friends. What sort of programs do you recommend higher education implement? Yeah, I love that question. Um, and I love that you put in, they don't have the support of their pets and their friends. And I'm, you know, the, the older I get, um, and I have four little kids. And so I'm thinking about, you know, them one day going off to college, I think about my own experience and struggles. And I'm, you know, the older I get, the more bewildered I am of this idea, even that we kind of take these little humans and we just plop them in this new space, right? We, and I think about, you know, the pandemic and, you know, when it first hit, how everything shifted, right? We lost how we socialize, how we work out, where we worship, where we get, you know, where we learn, where we play. And I mean, essentially, in a way, we're kind of doing that, right? With these 17, 18 year old kids, putting them in these new spaces and lacking what was protective originally, right? All of those external factors that, that were really protective. And 
what we find is, you know, some scary, you know, increase in substance use, um, you know, become suicide becoming the second leading cause of death. I mean, it's a real challenge that I think we we are facing. And I'm so happy you brought it up because it certainly is, you know, similar in the conversation we were having that there, you know, are, you know, certainly the the downstream, right, the mental health centers on campus are overwhelmed with anxiety, depression, and suicidality. And, you know, so grateful that they're doing the work they're doing. Um, But there's a whole population that isn't getting seen or treated, aren't seeking help, um, not really understanding what's happening. And I think the kind of the upstream kind of health promotion, prevention, the resilience building skills would be really beneficial in, again, giving them, not just helping them navigate, but we know, right, if the more we're providing these um, skills, these kind of optimistic thinking and, you know, gratitude and all of the the things in positive psychology that move us along the continuum towards flourishing, the further we are from the struggling. So when something happens that's really stressful or difficult, they kind of have a buffer. Um, And so I think really trying to move them along and finding uh, programs, resources that can instill those kind of skills in them. Um, I don't know, do you know the Dr. Lori Santos, I'm sure you know her um, and, and know of her and her work, but it's a perfect example of, you know, she in 2018 created that course in, um, what was it called? I think it was. Yeah, it was, uh, it was the Yelp course. Laurie was actually yeah. supposed to be my, my capstone advisor for my, when I was in the MAP program at Penn and uh, I had more of a business focus. So I ended up get, having another advisor who's actually going to be a guest on this show too. So we're creating this little positive psychology family. But uh, but yeah, Laurie has a really interesting class. I think she made a record on Coursera for yeah. uh, how many people took that course. Yeah. So it was in 2018, it was called The Good Life. Mm. And what they, it, it's to this day, the most popular course Yale has ever had, and it's 300 something years. So it got flooded, right, with students registering. That they had, they had to create multiple sections. It was like a 13,000, uh, sorry, a 1300, you know, student lecture. What was supposed to be like a hundred student lecture, uh, and it just has remained that way. And she, yeah, she has a free Coursera course based on it now that anyone can take, but. I think that the the idea right there is that the, these students are really hungry for these concepts of how do I just feel happier every day? What do I need to do? And we know in the science, there are things that we can do. We're just not teaching those things. And so I think they need it. They want it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, finding more ways to give it to them is going to have a, a big impact. I completely agree. And, and it's kind of interesting because we all also teach classes with undergrads and also um, Tess and I have seniors um, in high school who are going to college next year. So this is so completely relevant. Though I, I've really noticed in this class that I'm teaching, they're much more in tune and aware of their well-being and how they feel. And it doesn't mean they have it all figured out at all, but compared to when I was in college, I feel like 
I had no clue about any of this. Like really, it was in there, right? But I didn't have words. I didn't have conversations about it. So that's the encouraging piece, right? Is it's, it feels like it's getting in there um, and there's interest and they're trying to learn. So that's encouraging, um, right? Um, so my question for you is what role do you think the media is playing around positive psychology? Kind of the maybe promoting or detracting? Because I think I tend, I get a little frustrated sometimes when I see things like, toxic positivity and just really the oversimplification of ideas related to positive psychology. It kind of drives me crazy. Um, but I was curious about what your thoughts around the media and the role media plays with positive psych. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel you. I'm right with you there. Sometimes, you know, even just the headlines, how uh, negative they are or what they do. And, you know, of course, anxiety, depression, suicide, they still, I find, are very focused uh, away from positive psychology or understanding that, you know, the continuum or the spectrum of what psychology means and just taking psychology as just this one, what's wrong with people and um, being very negative. And of course, we know with the negativity bias, they do that on purpose, right? So we tune in and watch till the end. Um, but I think I, I agree with you of the misunderstanding and the misconception uh, around what positive psychology is. I think they're lacking um, really the, the storytelling component of bringing positive psychology to life, right? Of really, I mean, if, if they could, the power of storytelling and if, and if the, the, you know, the stories that they're presenting are actually people putting into practice, you know, how mindful meditation changed their, you know, parenting or how, you know, you know, workspaces and not just the headline, but really telling the story of someone's day to day and how significantly it can shift and be different um, in a much better way, right? When they can implement what we know to be these very effective practices. Um, so, I hope that the, the stories they tell start to begin be more, you know, along that kind of positive line and not positive, as you're saying, toxic positivity of just smiling, right? Positive psychology takes a lot of work and it's really about doing the practices every day. And when they're done, um, really can shift someone's entire life and, you know, the way they show up. This is this is great, and, and and as we're closing up, I'm I'm curious, how does your own personal life philosophy intersect with your work? Meaning, what have you personally worked on regarding your own positive psychology? Yes, so <laughs> I think um, it's not really separate in a lot of ways. Um, I. I pretty much am the parable. I think it's why I love it so much of like, there was a time when I was the person in the river flailing and found myself thankfully on the riverbank and ended up, you know, wanting to help, but thinking it has to be more, right? That clinical psychology path, right? It has to be more than just one person at a time. There has to be more we can do. Um, and then through that journey, just even finding positive psychology uh, was life-changing because it was really everything I wish I had had when I was younger. And then I was just so grateful I could learn it now and now have the opportunity to share it and teach it. Um, and so 
I mean, I'm a proponent of, as I mentioned, positive psychology, I think is about doing it, meaning it takes work. Um, I'm a huge proponent of therapy. You know, when thing, life throws me a curveball, I'm back in and I'm working it out. And I just think, um, you know, the journey is never ending in terms of our well-being. And I'm grateful for positive psychology that gives us tools and mindsets that we can continue to put into practice that help make those difficult times a little less difficult. Um, I think what it, um, Chris Peterson defines resilience as struggling well. And I just always remind myself of that, that, you know, again, the toxic positivity that positive psychology isn't about marching through all smiling and nothing ever phases you. It's about being able to feel the difficult emotions and, you know, understand the messages that they're giving you and then, you know, learn about yourself because of that and then keep moving. Right. And, and, um, so I really just, I live it. I don't just do this for work, but I really do live it. And it's just kind of, um, continuously on the journey as we all are. Delvina, that is probably one of the most beautifully said, I think, um, ways or statements around the way that you live your work. Um, I, I think it's a beautiful note to end on, but is there anything else that we didn't ask about that you wanted us to, that you wanted to address or um, any, any final thoughts before we end? No, this has just been a true joy. I've been smiling the whole time, if you couldn't see, and um, <laughs> so many wonderful questions. And I'm just to be in all of your presence. Thank you for the work you are doing um, in this field. And this, I love this podcast and have enjoyed Laura, uh, listened to yours too, and enjoyed all of the learning that comes with it. So thank you for your work too. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to hear future episodes, be sure to subscribe to the Happy at Work podcast and leave us a review with your thoughts. Are you interested in speaking on a future episode or want to collaborate with us? Let us know. You can send us an email at admin at happyatworkpodcast.com. And lastly, follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter for even more happiness. See you soon.